0: I don't think people, you know, should be blaming everything on their genes. There's certainly things that people can do to improve their health.
1: Welcome to The Power Hour, the weekly podcast that will motivate you to pursue your passion and to achieve success. I'm Adrienne Herbert, international speaker, fitness coach, Adidas global ambassador and entrepreneur. Each week, I'll be talking to today's leading coaches, creatives, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, morning routines and rules to live by. The Power Hour is all about taking just one hour each day to help you improve your life and unlock your full potential. Whether you want to build a business, write a book, run a marathon or maybe you're just looking for a spark of inspiration, The Power Hour is going to help you get there faster. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today's guest is a doctor whose work and research into gut health is revolutionising our approach to health and wellness. After losing her grandmother to bowel cancer and whilst working as a dietitian, she began to see many different patients from Olympic athletes to company CEOs who all suffered with illness related to the gut. She has since gone on to receive a PhD with the Dean's Award recognising her contribution to science in 2015. She then founded the Gut Health Clinic on Harley Street and she has recently written her first book, Eat Yourself Healthy, which is available to pre-order and is out next month. Welcome to the show, Megan Rossi. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be here thank you for coming in honestly megan personally i am fascinated by gut health and particularly in connection to our daily function high performance brain function all of that i have so many questions for you that i really don't know where to start so let's get into it as i mentioned in the intro you specialize in gut health so can you take us back i guess to the start how did you start on this path and did you ever think that gut
0: health would become such
1: a mainstream topic within the wellness world?
0: So, no, I certainly didn't think gut health would become such a hot topic um, in the wellness industry. But, you know, I have always been very much into nutrition and science. So I was raised on an Italian farm. So food was such a big thing, like a very community um, drawing. And then my mum was a science teacher. So I think she instilled my inquisitive mindset from a young age. But I guess the gut, so to speak. So I was always going to be, I think, in my mind, a nutrition and dietitian. Um, but the gut, I didn't actually have my first conscious memory until, you know, probably just over 10 years ago. And it was in my final year of nutrition and dietetics at university. And, and my grandma, who you mentioned, and had such a big part of my upbringing. Like, she was so important to me. And when she was diagnosed, I just hated the gut so, so much. And then as I saw her, you know, make her struggle through chemo, through surgery, and then later, you know, losing her to this freaking organ. I just hated it. I had so many negative emotions towards the gut. And I, you know, somewhat suppressed them as I went in to be a clinical dietitian. So I worked in a hospital with a number of six people actually. And I found that actually people who had things like kidney disease and heart disease were actually coming to me complaining of gut issues. And I thought, what is it about this bloody gut? Like, unlike my grandma, the disease was in the gut. I got it. Whereas people who had disease in very different organs were complaining of gut issues. So it was around 2010, so not a lot of research at the time. So I did what any crazy 21-year-old would do, and I embarked on a PhD to really try to understand that if we nurtured the gut through the right nutrition, whether we could improve the health of other organs like the kidney and the heart. And fast forward those three years, it was a positive trial that showed that, yeah, actually things like the gut and the kidneys were connected. And I was very fortunate to be the nutritionist for the Australian Olympic Synchronized Swimming Team, as, as you alluded to um, And I noticed that the girls that had the most performance anxiety also had the most number of gut issues highlighting it wasn't just this unique gut-kidney axis, but also this gut-brain axis. And at that stage, a lot more research was coming out connecting the gut to pretty much every other organ in our body. And things like if we wanted better skin, better weight management, all that sort of stuff, it looked like the gut had a role. So at that point, I was like, you know what? I really want to dedicate the rest of my career to the gut. So I looked around the world and King's College in London were the most innovative researchers looking at nutrition for the gut. So I moved over in 2015.
1: Wow. Oh, yeah. my goodness. So, yeah, I guess very intentional then. Because, you know, sometimes people go, oh, I just kind of fell into this. But actually, it sounds like, yeah, it was very intentional. And I guess it just kept uh, coming up for you.
0: Yeah, but I, I guess I always, I thought I'd just be a researcher. I, I certainly didn't think I'd get into, you know, social media or writing a book, maybe a textbook. Um, but about a year into my post, I just got really frustrated that despite the amazing work that not just my group, but all the other groups around the world were doing, the research groups, it was a fad and potentially dangerous messages that were being fed to the public. Like in my clinic, I was seeing people, really intelligent people, you know, having very, very restrictive diets because they'd gotten tests that had said they were intolerant to pretty much every food under the sun. And then other people were having these high dose supplements were actually, they were causing gut issues. So, you know, the organ that I saw had so much power and potential was actually being misrepresented. So Mm. I moved more into social media and yeah, so many things have come from that.
1: Brilliant. Well, um, honestly, I honestly have so many questions about this, because <laughs> I think uh, rightly, as you said, we're going to come on to talking about, you know, the myths, the do's, the don'ts, the, because I think with gut health, although it's a good thing that it's become more popular and more mainstream and people are acknowledging the importance of it. I think what comes with that, as you said, is a lot of misinformation, a lot of contradictory and kind of extreme things as well. And I think for a lot of people, myself included, actually, you know, I've done a few episodes now with different doctors, different um uh, sleep doctor, nutrition doctor, food nutritionists, and often you know people have health anxiety, and when they get so fed so much different information, it can actually make you like more stressed out, more worried because you're thinking, okay, I should be eating this and drinking that and taking this supplement and giving this to my child and this daily, and then you're like, oh, but the complete opposite research or or some different science and some different evidence suggests the complete opposite, and doing all these things is detrimental, and it's yeah, it's, it can be very stressful. So. As you are the gut doctor, could you please, I guess, just give us like the basics, the 101, the good, the bad and in between of gut health and what we should, I guess, be striving for, for optimum gut health?
0: Yeah, look, that's a really good question. And I think the best way to start this off is you know, thinking about what actually is gut health because it's in the media all the time, but what it is isn't often communicated. So gut health actually relates the functioning of our entire digestive tract, which is a tube that delivers food from entry all the way to exit. So that's that nine-meter-long tube. And I guess if I was to summarize all of the evidence at the moment, there's really three reasons why gut health is just so important for us. The first reason is, uh, you know, the good old saying, you are what you eat, isn't necessarily true. It's more about you are what you digest. Um, Mm -hmm. So if you're, you know, eating the most healthiest foods, but you don't have a good gut lining, then you're actually not going to extract that nutrition and absorb it into your body. So good gut health is actually really important to get the most out of the food that you're eating. The second element is the fact that along that nine metre long digestive tract lays uh, 70% of our immune system. Wow. So if we want less sick days, a stronger, you know, immune system, then we need to look after our gut health. And then the third element, which has really brought the fame, I guess, to the concept of gut health, is the fact that we all have trillions of microbes, including the bacteria that live in the lower part of our intestine. And the scientific word for that is called our gut microbiota, and it's kind of nearly considered to be an own like a, an organ in its own right.
1: Mm, I've definitely listened to a lot of podcasts about this gut microbiome and about I was even at a wellness festival earlier this year where there was a company that you could essentially send off a stool sample and they would you know look into your microbiome and send you back all this information and it seems that yeah apparently it's the like I don't know the the map we can see everything from this and also I think you know listening to what you were saying then from the science element I'm also thinking you know even from like a holistic approach from you know looking back centuries people have always said you know listen to your gut or you know the gut is the second brain or it kind of you know that thing of having nervous a nervous stomach or having butterflies or you know it's connected emotionally it's connected Absolutely. to our um i guess it's all connected it's more than as you said just you are what you eat or or just about food and nutrition so so yeah i guess what are the things that we should be striving for to to have good gut health and what are the red flags that our gut health needs to improve?
0: Yeah. So firstly, just touching on the tests that you mentioned because there are a lot of companies doing this and I think it's really important to be aware that the research isn't quite there yet. Um, so it's a bit of a case of you know commercialization is ahead of the research. Uh, so in my research world, I certainly do um, collect poop samples. We do the analysis. But we don't just look at what bacteria are there, which is kind of what those commercial tests do. We actually look at what the bacteria are doing. And the reason why that's an important difference is because um, two very different bacteria can actually do the same functions. And similarly, the identical same bacteria can act very different in different environments. So just looking at what bacteria you have in you, you know, doesn't offer us a lot of information. In fact, it can just kind of freak some people out and go, oh, I'm missing something, I need more of this. Um, so at the moment, I don't recommend people get those tests done. Um, but I think definitely in, in the next couple of years, we will l- know a lot more from those sorts of tests. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we look after our gut? Well, I think we know that one of the most important things um, for gut health is, is our diet uh, because, you know, our bacteria in our gut relies on us um, to feed it. Essentially. So it's kind of like this little inner universe of potential or a little pet um, that we need to nourish. So, where the evidence stands in terms of the diet is actually about being um, not restrictive. And I think a lot of people think, oh, if I need good gut health, I have to cut everything out. It's actually about being more inclusive. So, what I currently um, recommend, according to the science, is that people try to get around 30 different plant based foods in their diet a week. Now, I know that can sound really intimidating. People go, oh my God, that's impossible. But things like, you know, On your breakfast, whatever you're having, add a teaspoon of mixed seeds. You get four points there. Instead of just getting, you know, the steamed broccoli, get the multi-veggie pack. And then you get another, like, three points. So just those small little switches, you actually can achieve that. And the reason the diversity is important is because, you know, like us, our bacteria have all different taste preferences. So each different plant-based food has slightly different nutrients for the different bacteria. And if we want a really diverse range of bacteria in our gut, which is associated with, you know, better weight management, um, better heart health, et cetera, um, better mental health also is really important. Then we need to feed them that diverse range of, of food so they're they're all happy and they can grow together.
1: Awesome yeah that sounds great I've heard it described before as well as a jungle yeah. you know that like you've got to have a variety of all the different plants and as you said like you need to eat a variety as well to match that so what would be some I guess yeah red flags or things to look out for that people should you know kind of not be worried about but just kind of say okay maybe you could improve a little bit on your gut health.
0: Yeah so there's many other things that are non-diet related that we know certainly can impact on our gut health things like stress and that's all via that gut brain axis so our gut and our brain are constantly communicating Communicating, um, And that's why, as you said, you know, we get nervous. We can feel it in our belly, even though it, the, the nervousness is just in our head. Um, but it's bi-directional, so our gut can also talk to our brain. Um, so I think, you know, trying to manage the stress can also be really important for looking after your gut health, whether it's with things like mindfulness. Exercise is also a really great one. Um, sleep is another hugely important one because like our human cells, they have a body clock um, according to the circadian rhythm, so does our gut bacteria. So getting your seven to nine hours is also really, really important. If we were to look at diet, uh, I guess. Um, my research group at Kang's is currently looking at some of the food additives and looking at whether they're how they're impacting our gut bacteria and we think they're probably not doing a lot of good for us Um, so I guess moving away from those processed foods which I think most of us know is probably not good for overall health anyway but we're more trying to understand the mechanisms um, and why they might not be as good as what we had hoped.
1: Mm, Okay, cool. So yeah, lifestyle things, I think, so important. Diet, sleep, exercise, as you mentioned. What about genetics? You know, sometimes people tend to throw that word out sometimes as an excuse. It's like, oh, genetics, there's nothing you can do. Like I've even heard people say to me before, you know, when it comes to diet and exercise and all the rest of it, I hear what you're saying, Adrienne. We know what's good and bad. But at the end of the day, sometimes if your genetics are this,
0: then that's it. So what do you think? Yeah, look, the thing that I find so empowering about our gut health is that so much... Is in our own hands. So unlike our genetics, we can't actually change our genes, but we can change the bacteria. And we know the bacteria do so many different things for us. So if we look after it, it can produce the right sort of vitamins and minerals. It can help with our blood sugar regulation and our appetite control. So actually, our gut microbiota is an organ we can have so much impact on, and that can improve the health and happiness of the rest of our body. Um, so I do certainly think that a lot of that power's in our hand. In saying that, there are certain conditions like inflammatory bowel disease, where there is a genetic component, Component. But we also know that there's an environmental factor which, twi- which kind of switches those genes on. So just because you have the genes for it doesn't necessarily mean you'll get it. Um, but there might be something in the environment, whether it's things like food additives or, you know, the, the pollution or something like that, which kind of switches those genes on. So there definitely is a combination. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't think people, you know, should be blaming everything on their genes. There's certainly things that people can do to improve their health.
1: Mm, that's awesome to hear. Yeah, taking it into your own hands and feeling empowered to make changes with the knowledge that it's going to have a positive impact, I think is really powerful. What about this? I read something recently about when you, uh, if you live in an area where there's lots of woods, lots of trees, lots of grass, and you walk through that area and you breathe and you breathe through your nose, that apparently is good for the for the gut. And I was kind of thinking, okay, because you're breathing through your resp- respiratory system, but it's still
0: affecting the gut. Is this true? Is this a myth? Is this a fad? No, we certainly do see uh, that people who, you know, play outdoors, work outdoors actually do tend to have a more diverse range of gut bacteria in their gut, which remember is associated with better overall health. And the thing that uh, people don't really realize is that there are microbes everywhere. Um, in fact, we actually have a skin microbiota. So on our skin, we've, it's kind of like a second skin. It's invisible because you can't see the microbes with the human eye, but there are millions of microbes. And that's why, you know, there are some research suggesting that things like maybe topical probiotics may help with things like acne or, or eczema, etc., because it's targeting the bacteria on the skin. Um, so if you go out in the woods, there's a diverse, range of different microbes there so you're breathing them in and they're getting into your system um and therefore adding kind of to that collective community that you're growing and remember it's kind of like a football team you want to have as mer- much diverse skills as you can inside of you
1: amazing i'm so happy that you just confirmed that for me because <laughs> essentially i walked my son through woods to school it's only a short walk but i told him about it and so now when we walk through we're always like <sighs> inhale <laughs> inhale the microbes. Yeah, no, no, absolutely <laughs> crazy yeah.
0: mum but i'm literally like
1: i'm <laughs> i glad that I wasn't just
0: making that up. It's no, 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 actually no. true. It's true. It's very true. And, you know, playing in dirt and all that sort of stuff. We- There's a um, hygiene hypothesis suggesting that, you know, because, you know, 10 years, 20 years ago, we were quite actually clean with our kids. They didn't play in dirt. We were, you know, getting the spray and wipes and things like that. Their, their body wasn't actually exposed to the different microbes. And the microbes are so important for training our immune system. Remember, 70% lays along our digestive tract. So if we don't have a range of different exposures to the bacteria, particularly in the first three years of life, then our immune system isn't trained correctly and then we're at high risk of things like allergies and other autoimmune conditions and even obesity in fact.
1: Wow okay yeah I've heard a lot about this with the kind of antibacterial hand gels the kind of you know wipes as you said for everything washing hands washing hands it's actually kind of yeah I guess pendulumed almost too far yeah. and we do need I guess yeah some some dirt and some bacteria right. Yeah. So on that I would love to talk to you Megan about probiotics and prebiotics oh my goodness the amount of information (laughs) i feel like i could do a whole show just on this but the amount of information that's out there and i recently listened to the two scientists debating saying that you know this whole prebiotic probiotic is actually just companies selling you products that are very expensive that do absolutely nothing he was arguing that they do nothing and that they're not essential at all whereas others will say Everybody, absolutely everywhere, should be taking a daily probiotic. So what's going on? Yeah.
0: So firstly, there is so much confusion about them because they sound very similar, but they're actually very different things. So although there's only one letter that separates them, so prebiotic, P-R-E-biotic, is essentially like food for the good bacteria, like fertilizer. Um, And the probiotic, P-R-O-biotic, is actually the live microbes. Um, So I think there certainly has been a lot of overhype in the media about these two words. Um, But there is some evidence in some conditions. Now, when it comes to prebiotics, the the, uh, food for the bacteria, I very, very rarely recommend people need to take a supplement. Prebiotics are in all of the plant-based foods that we eat. So that's, again, bringing back to the reason why we need that diversity, because all the different types of plant-based foods contain slightly different prebiotics. So the average person out there, I certainly would not recommend a prebiotic supplement. There are some conditions, like I said, in my clinical practice where I would recommend, but very few. And then when it comes to probiotics, the actual bacteria, again, um, there isn't evidence to suggest that if you are healthy that you should be taking one of these capsules. In fact I'm very anti that. I think getting, you know, some extra microbes in your diet through fermented food is a really good idea. Like kefir. It's my favourite, it takes literally two minutes to make it they've got heaps of recipes in the book. Um, and, you know, other sorts of fermented foods like nato is quite a strong taste but things like kimchi and sauerkraut and stuff so including that sort of stuff and even uh, live yogurt so traditional greek yogurt contains some bacteria
1: well as yogurt was on my list because yeah. i feel like so many yogurts now just say like Pro- pre-biotic, prebiotic, probiotic, and you kind of think what is that do i even need it and there's all these words about you know like activia this and like oh no what is it activia bifalaris all these things yeah, they yeah, yeah. just tell you like this is gonna make your gut Cure, happy yeah, and you're yeah. like what are you talking no. about it's just it feels like it I don't know. Yeah, I think
0: eat them because you enjoy them and they're super tasty. Um, And then any health benefits I think is just an addition. So I don't think people need to be having these specific ones which push um, different strains, like you mentioned um, the yogurt brand any yogurt brand
1: but like, no that's the um, thing it comes
0: up yeah I guess that comes more around when we're talking about probiotics a capsule or where there is yogurts that got specific bacteria added to it so um, what we need to remember is that bacteria are all very different and there's thousands of different types If you, it's kind of like a vitamin if you are vitamin D deficient you're not going to go and take vitamin A and think that's going to help you it's the same with probiotics. So if you have a certain condition, for example, if you um, have irritable bowel syndrome or hay fever, there's some evidence for as well. Um, then you need to take the specific type of bacteria, and we call that the strain that has shown benefit in clinical trial. Now it's not just type of bacteria it's you need to take the right dose um, for the right duration and you know the right form whether it's with a meal without a meal so it's really like a prescription Mm. and again in my book I definitely talk about where the evidence is it with probiotics and which conditions and recommend which types of strains and kind of give you a bit of a probiotic prescription for that but for the average person yeah certainly don't need to take a probiotic um, or you know pay expensive um, or buy expensive sorts of foods that contain a, a certain type of bacteria that are claiming all these things. Hmm.
1: Okay that's good to know. I don't actually take one so now I'm like okay yeah. fine. Yeah. But what about <laughs> um? you know everyone knows the thing about antibiotics and they say as soon as you finish taking antibiotics you need to take probiotics and also I recently heard someone as well talking about ibuprofen and saying that apparently taking it this is how he described it this is a doctor on a very popular podcast which I love listening to and he said that when you take a And ibuprofen, you are essentially dropping an atomic bomb into your gut. And I was like, wow, that is a powerful message. So yeah, things like antibiotics, you know, ibuprofen, antihistamines, all these things that you wouldn't take unless you had to, right? You wouldn't take them unless you needed to. Should we be worried about our gut health
0: afterwards? Yeah. So I think when it comes to antibiotics, there's actually really, really good evidence that if you are taking an antibiotic, then you should actually take a probiotic throughout the duration of that antibiotic course and for a week after. And that will significantly reduce your risk of getting antibiotic-associated diarrhea, which affects about 30% of people who take an antibiotic. So that is one area where there's good evidence to take a probiotic. So I'd certainly recommend people take that. And one of the types of strains that's shown the best um, evidence is, Called Saccharomyces boulardii, and you would take 5 billion units twice a day, two hours after meals. So, you know, it's quite restrictive the way I talk about it, and yeah. that's the way we should be treating it. Um, now, when we talk about the effect of different medications on the gut bacteria, this is an evolving area of research, and we certainly do know things like antibiotics can really devastate the gut. Um, but, you know, if we need to take them, we need to take them. Um, it's about if you do need to take them, then you know, try the probiotic as well as making sure that you do refertilize the gut, so to speak, with all those plant-based foods. Um, so you know, if your doctor says to you, "Look, you don't need to take a, a antibiotic because it's just a common cold, then, don't push them to prescribe you that. Uh, you know my partner's a GP and my husband's a GP, and um, he often gets people coming in saying, "I need an antibiotic. I've got a cold." And it's like, well, actually, it's viral, so it's it's not going to have an effect. But they get pushed into it. So I think that's really important. as listening to your doctor, and you don't always need it. Other things like you mentioned, um, like ibuprofen, if you you know just have a bit of a headache because you know, you're not sleeping well because you're super stressed and all those sorts of things. And we shouldn't just be relying on medication because we know that medication probably does have some degree to a negative effect on our bacteria. We're not sure how severe that is. And it's certainly not going to be the atomic bomb that um, that, <laughs> that doctor suggested um, but we know that it, you know probably not the best thing so it's about you know weighing up the pros and cons and yeah things like sleeping pills as well you know if it's because you you know, are stressed so you need to work on your sleep you need to work on uh, your stress you need to work on things like your sleep hygiene and again in the book I talk about really practical ways like a sleep hygiene protocol which actually colleagues at King's did in a clinical trial and showed that by following this protocol which is really simple you actually previously sleep I think it's about 45 minutes a night in sleep quality versus those who just got told to you know sleep more um, so yeah there's little things that people can change in their lifestyle mm-hmm. to ensure maybe they don't need to have these medications but you know if you're on a medication always talk to your doctor before stopping it I think that's important.
1: Awesome! Thank you so much for giving us such such great insight and detail. It's fascinating. Um, and you mentioned it earlier on, very briefly. You mentioned the the letters IBS. Now, this is a very popular thing. I feel like so many people just say, "Oh, I have IBS," or they just, or I've heard, you know, they just get told by their GP maybe, "Oh, you have IBS," and they don't really know what it is. And I'm sure it's different for everyone. And something that I feel like the health and wellness space is kind of obsessed with is bloating this word Mm. bloating the amount of you know instagram posts around bloating and why are we so afraid of bloating and also is it normal to kind of you know feel bloated after a big meal or is this is this a red flag that we're maybe eating something that we're intolerant to or that we have ibs
0: yeah this is very common so irritable bowel syndrome affects around 10 percent of adults so it's particularly in the UK, it's really, really quite common. Um, And some of the main um, characteristics of Irritable Bowel Syndrome is you have to have tummy pain at least one day a week uh, and that has to be persistent for at least six months. It's kind of a chronic condition. And then also it's related to like your poops, whether they're too hard or too soft. So I guess that's one of the diagnostic criteria for IBS. But if you think you have IBS, I think the most important thing is always to go to your GP and make sure it's not celiac disease, which is the autoimmune condition to gluten. Because a lot of people say... Oh, it it's you know just IBS. When actually it could be that they have something like celiac disease, where even you know a hundredth of a of a, a slice of bread, so a little teeny crumb, if they're having that and they've got celiac disease, can actually do long term damage. So it's really important to rule that out first. Um, and then, yeah, if it is irritable bowel syndrome, then it's not just diet. Um, and people often think that. And, and same with the bloating aspect. There could be many other factors uh, relating to that. Now, when it comes to bloating in particular, absolutely it's normal to have a little bit of bloating, particularly if you had a really high-fibre meal. In fact, I consider that little bit of bloating kind of like a well-fed gut microbiota because when the bacteria eat the um, The plant-based foods, the fiber, uh, they release a little bit of gas, which is just normal. In fact, actually, I probably haven't uh, highlighted. One of the things that I don't think many people realize is that plant-based eating, we've realized it's so important because each plant contains fiber. It's like the cell structure. And fibre actually has no purpose for human cells. Human cells can't digest it. The sole purpose of dietary fibre is to feed our gut microbiota. And we never really realised that before and made the connection of why fibre was so important. And now because we understand that we have these strains of microbes, we now understand, oh, that's why fibre is important to include in the plant-based foods because they feed the microbes. Um, So when we have, you know, plant-based foods, we do get a little bit of bloating, which is completely normal. Um, However... There, that certainly doesn't mean that if you have very severe bloating, then that's something you should live with. Um, I do see people who, you know, do look like they're three or six months pregnant and they're in a lot of pain, and it really does impact their quality of life, their confidence, all that sort of stuff. So, again, in the book, I definitely go through um, and help people identify whether they do have a food intolerance. And the way I do that is through this 3R uh, process. And it's so important to realize that. All those tests on the market that says they can identify whether you have a food intolerance are actually invalid. The only um, food that you can uh, food intolerance that you can diagnose via one of these tests is lactose intolerance, which is milk sugar. The others, things like gluten, wheat intolerance, it's via this three R process where you would uh, record everything you're eating, you would then have a look whether there is an association with your symptoms and that food, you would then restrict for four to six weeks, uh, and then the third element, which is super, super important, is actually reintroduce to make sure that actually when you do reintroduce, you get the symptoms. It's not just a coincidence of cutting something out of your diet. So again, I kind of talk people through to identify whether actually they need to be on this restriction because people kind of get confused and they end up cutting out so many things, which we know is actually not good for the gut bacteria. In fact, people who are on a gluten-free diet when they don't need to be, i.e. they don't have celiac disease or non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which is like a gluten intolerance, those people, if they cut it out, it's good for them. But if they, other people, if they cut out the gluten, actually they have a decreased diversity of gut bacteria because they end up cutting out so many beneficial foods like whole grains, which actually feed the gut bacteria. So yeah, I think we need to be cautious of not to go, oh, it's a food intolerance and cut all these things out. And hopefully that's the one part of the book that I really hope does help a lot of people broaden Mm -hmm. up their diet. Um, And then when it comes to things like bloating, like I said, there's many lifestyle factors. So Yes, it could be elements of what you're eating, but also things like if you're living in your gym gear, really tight pants, that actually can trigger bloating on its own. If you're super stressed, that can trigger bloating. If you haven't had much sleep over time, again, that can trigger bloating. Mm. Um, so there's many different factors uh, that can. And there's simple things. So uh, relaxing that gut-brain axis um, can really help with bloating as well as things like irritable bowel syndrome. So I talk people through things like the dietary component, but also that lifestyle component of relaxing the gut-brain axis and doing things like the mindfulness, which, you know, I think historically we thought was a bit kippy-dippy. But we now have the clinical trials to back it up and show that clinically it can improve symptoms
1: yeah for sure I, th- I think the the whole holistic as you said people will go oh that's kind of out there whereas now as you said because the evidence is there to su- support it i think people really take it seriously and uh, one thing i know that a friend of mine does she said that she sits down before every meal and she does maybe like 90 seconds two minutes of of breathing nasal breathing slow breathing and she used to have a lot of gut issues and a lot of bloating a lot of pain and now she does that before she eats and she eats you know a little bit slower but she said it's definitely she said she can tell if she's busy and she's rushing around and she just has to you know grab and eat on the go it comes back whereas when she does this yeah uh, nasal breathing before she eats um, it seems to be fine
0: yeah and then and there's like science and mechanisms to back that up because if you do the nasal breathing it activates a system called your parasympathetic nervous system, which is like your rest and digest, which really helps support digestion. So doing that na- nasal breathing kind of tells your body, okay, it's time to eat. Whereas if you're super stressed, then the other nervous system called the sympathetic nervous system, which is like, it's called the fight or the flight, the nickname of it is when you're super stressed, you know, you don't get blood drawn to your stomach to help with digestion. It's to the muscles in case, you know, you need to go for a run um, or, you know, get away from the bears or something like that. So yeah, that, that's such a good strategy.
1: Awesome! I love that you just said. Then I was like, "Yes, yes, yes." <laughs> okay, so a few little myths, kind of like a, I guess like a myth-busting true or false overheard about the gut health. So, can you tell us if these are true or false? Poor gut health can cause dementia.
0: I think there certainly is, <laughs> sorry, I know, hard, so like, no. there certainly is a link between them. Um, I think. There is an element of genetics that you can't control. But also I think that uh, we do, certainly do see um, people who have a more diverse range of gut, of gut bacteria um, are less likely to get dementia. So there's a link there, but we're not sure if it's a chicken and an egg, you know, which causes which. Sure. Um, but certainly I, I'm very pro um, for your mental health, really looking after your gut health.
1: Awesome. Okay, Pour, uh, next one. Intermittent fasting is good for gut health
0: another really great question. I get that <laughs> asked this the all ones. the time. Now there's so many different types of intermittent fasting. Um, now when we look at the evidence, there isn't any human studies to show that actually fasting will help your gut bacteria. Um, I do see that people who are more prone to constipation, um, if they, you know, at least have that 12 hour fast, then that can help activate this movement called the mass movement, which kind of pushes the poop down. Uh, so that can help, but I don't think extreme fasting, um, Is actually good for the gut in fact if we are fasting for long periods of time we're actually depriving our gut bacteria of food as well the fiber and in animal studies they've shown that if you um, deprive your gut bacteria of fiber they actually start to eat the mucus lining of your gut lining um, which obviously is not good for your gut (laughs) so yeah i think there's an element of the personalization there Mm -hmm. um, but as a general rule i wouldn't recommend people do intermittent fasting for good gut health
1: okay and then the next one is everyone needs to take a daily probiotic but we've already covered that so i know that it's false yeah awesome okay thanks so so educated (laughs) i love it i love it Okay, so now I want to talk to you about the Power Hour. So, on this show, I just love to hear about, you know, why people do what they do, which we've touched on, how they do it, their daily habits in relation to their own success, personally, professionally, health, happiness, all of it. I think it's I think it's all, you know, interlinked. So, I'd love to hear, I guess, more from you, from a personal level, about your morning routine. If you have one, what time do you get up in the morning and what's the first hour of your day like?
0: Oh, so I... I'm not a morning person, which is really? why I'm my so brain surprised. probably only
1: just kicked in now. <laughs> I'm so surprised because obviously you're an academic and your husband being a GP. I feel like you would
0: literally have
1: this like, I don't know, a house of doctors and you're not a morning person.
0: No, no, no. Wow. I'm certainly a night hour. Just my best work comes at night. Um, so I get up around 7.30 <laughs> normally, um, obviously not all mornings when I've got early morning meetings. Um, so I get up. I actually am now the proud owner of uh, my puppy called Pistachio. Oh, so we cute. go for walks uh, walk to the park and we just play around around there for a little bit. Then we come back. Um, it sounds really weird, but we have like a little, um, a little dinner date or breakfast date where he has a little bit of kefir and I have some kefir together. Um, but for those who have puppies out there, just be aware that puppies can't have loads of dairy um, because of the lactose and milk sugar. They can't digest a lot of it. So I give him about 30 mils. Um, and I have some and then I put him in his little cage where he has a little nap while I do about five to ten minutes of different um, yoga poses so a bit of a yoga flow. Now I'm not a yogi I don't even know the names of half the things I do but I just do you know you go to classes and you pick things up mm-hmm. um, I should probably get the fit <laughs> app that, you, yeah. that you're on um, and then I do
1: I'm sorry to interrupt you but why do you do so the poses that you do as you said you don't worry about the names it doesn't matter to you but why do you do those in the morning? Yeah
0: so there is really good evidence to show that can certainly relax that gut brain axis so that gentle compression on the gut um Um, As well as, yeah, just getting my mind very clear for the day ahead. And then I follow that, um, the physical movement with 10 minutes of mindfulness. Um, So I use a mindfulness app there. Uh, And then after that, I feel very chill. I have my overnight fermented oats, my coffee, and I either, you know, cycle off to King's um, or I retreat to my office for the day it's probably about an hour maybe an hour and 20. <laughs> sounds
1: nice sounds nice okay two things I want to ask you about that one was coffee haven't even talked about coffee I'm going to ask you about that but first the kefir so I don't have uh, animal products that much in my diet so I don't have dairy so is kefir a dairy only product can you get a vegan version is that a
0: thing? Yeah you certainly can get water kefir okay um, now they are slightly different in terms of not only the structure but also where the evidence is at. So most of the evidence for kefir has come from the dairy kefir um, where the bacteria kind of ferment some of that lactose, the milk, sugar and produce a range of different organic acids which we think have a range of different benefits. Um, And when the water kefir is concerned, there's actually no clinical trials that have have ever looked at that. I think if you are vegan, 100% plant-based, 100% still try the water kefir. I make, um, the dairy kefir at home and it's just so, so easy. It literally takes me like two minutes. Whereas the water kefir is a little bit, um, harder to kind of manage because it, uh, yeah, the bacteria ferment and the yeast ferment it a lot faster. So, you know, it can only be in the fridge for like, uh, only be fermenting for like four hours sometimes if it's quite hot. So I do have both those recipes in the book, so you can choose. Um, but yeah, so I'm more pro, um, uh, the dairy version but of course if you plant based, then try the water
1: awesome and then the coffee thing so yeah I didn't ask you about coffee so you have coffee in the morning do you have just one coffee do you have more throughout the day does coffee affect our gut health I have someone who I've said this before so people listening I hope you are not yeah you've probably heard this before but coffee affects me a lot a lot. I literally have like one coffee, maybe a week, maybe every two weeks, because it just like, it's like rocket fuel for me. And yeah. I love it. And I love the taste. I love the smell. But I certainly couldn't have it every day. And I couldn't have more than one a day, not for myself, but for those people around me who would have to suffer. <laughs> and then I crash and burn. And I feel like, I think I feel like my heart's racing. I feel kind of anxious and yeah, yeah, frantic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know. Is there, is there any relation with coffee and gut?
0: Absolutely. We know that caffeine, so in coffee, actually can increase our stress hormone and people who aren't used to it, which is why you get the heart racing and kind of feel a little bit anxious. So, a lot of my IBS patients, I recommend them actually not having um, caffeine or just having, you know, decaf coffee. Um, so, when we look for everyone else, I think having one or two coffees a day is fine. I have one coffee um, and I make sure it's not overly strong because. I'm the same with you. I really can feel like the effects of it physically with the increased things like the cortisol. Um, Where we look at, yeah, for the average person out there, um, coffee, you know, good quality coffee actually has got a range of different um, plant chemicals in it, which are actually good for the gut bacteria. So having some coffee is actually probably good for the gut bacteria but it's for people the caffeine aspect mm-hmm. where it can increase things like stress and aggravate things like gut movement. So if you've got IBS and it can trigger the pain and the bloating and things like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, yes. Coffee's always like a yes or a no. Yeah. What about um, alcohol? What about wine or spirits? Is, is is that good or bad?
0: Yeah, actually there was a paper just published and I was talking to BBC about it um, just yesterday about red wine, showing that people who had you know small amounts of red wine, like 100 meals a couple of times a week, actually had a more diverse of Gut bacteria in them, and because the red wine contains these things called the polyphenols, the plant chemicals, which then feeds the gut bacteria. Um, that's probably why there is that link there. Now, Some if of my you're...
1: clients are going to be so happy listening to this, <laughs> they're like, "Yes, the red wine is
0: in." The important thing, though, if you're not a drinker. Certainly, I would not start drinking. It's not going to be yeah, beneficial in that way. Um, it's more of, you know, if you're used to having things like beer or cider, maybe switching one to a red wine might be a good idea. Um, overall, when we look at alcohol, you know, it's probably not great for the gut, particularly if you've got um, IBS or gut symptoms like bloating. It, it can trigger them. Um, to some extent but you know life is to be enjoyed alcohol is is there to be enjoyed so small amounts you know try not to binge drink and i'm the first one to admit god early 20s i was a massive binge drinker um and you know so it's not about you've killed you got health forever it's like if you're going to have a few drinks and maybe also thinking about upping the plant-based diversity that day or the next day Awesome.
1: Cool. Okay. And could you please give the listeners a challenge? So the Power Hour Challenge is something that they could get involved in this week. Maybe they could try either in the morning or
0: anytime. So I think it's going to be thinking every meal, everything that you eat, I want you to think about not just the foods that you enjoy eating and your taste buds like, but what sorts of things you're going to feed your gut bacteria. So I think, you know, at mealtimes, we've actually historically been quite selfish. It's kind of like, oh, what do I want? But we've got this diverse range of bacteria. And, like, you know, if you're having a dinner party and you just had vegans, you know, you're not going to just serve them meat. You're going to give them options. So foods for my taste buds but also for the gut bacteria. So a little bit nerdy, but every meal I kind of think and make sure there's something for my gut bacteria with every every sort of snack or meal I have. And remember, those foods come from all your different plant-based foods. So, you know, if you are having some meat, make sure it's sided with a range of different veggies. Um, Things like chocolate. Uh, White chocolate is actually one of my favourite foods, but it doesn't offer any nutrition for the gut bacteria. So I actually have now devised uh, a prebiotic chocolate bark, which contains... Extra virgin olive oil, um, which is good for the gut bacteria. They like the the polyphenols in that, and also some um, pistachios. Again, prebiotic food. Mango, prebiotic food. Combine that together. So it's super tasty for my taste buds, but also offers some nutrition for my gut microbes. Amazing. Okay, so I'll that's see. a challenge. So every meal you have, think of foods that you like, but add some plant based food to the bacteria too.
1: Awesome. Okay, I'm gonna make. I want a little list. Could you give us like ten? Foods which are yeah going to f- help feed the gut. So you said pistachios.
0: Well, actually, remember that rule—the uh, recommendation on the thirty different plant-based foods. Yes.
1: So, what would be but, the top ten that we could try? So I can add them to my shopping list this week.
0: Well, the thing is, it's not about any one in particular mm. because there's thousands of different ones which all have the different types of plant-based foods. So I sure. don't want people to be fixating on just ten. I actually want them to be getting the thirty in. Okay, sure. So maybe write a little list yep. of however many you're having. And then find an additional, you know, 10, 15 Mm -hmm. that you've not heard of or
1: um, you've just not tried. Yeah, I get it. So mix it up. Because I think we're all guilty sometimes of buying the same foods because that's what we like and it's easy and we know where they are and I think I know that I do that I can whiz through supermarket and just grab the things I always get the spinach the broccoli the tomatoes avocado you just kick up those things so I guess maybe I'll try and get four or ten or thirty or whatever foods that don't normally make it into my basket
0: yeah absolutely that's such a good like I've got a diversity planner and which you should totally use with your son and where you write down the different fruit and veg you have over the week and you go oh I'm going to choose this new one and you select something that yeah it's not kind of within your culinary um appetite yeah
1: that sounds amazing especially for kids i think so many parents probably need that because you do it's like you know you know what your kids like you try to you know encourage them to eat lots of different things but essentially they fall back to those favorites so yeah we definitely need to try that in our house oh my gosh it's been amazing talking to you today before i ask you my closing question please could you tell us all where we can find you online instagram
0: website and when and where we can get the book so, I am at The Gut Health Doctor across Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook, and my website is www.theguthealthdoctor.com. The book, uh, so you can get it on Amazon now. Um, for those who are pre ordering, actually, we, I have a special little gift. So, it's a, a little gut diary. Um, and really, that for me was just to say thank you for all my followers because I know they're the ones who are pre ordering um, for buying the book. Um, so, yeah, and then I'm sure it's in all of the bookstores i'm terrible i don't actually know which ones but um i'm sure there's plenty out
1: there yeah i'm sure we'll find it thank you so much okay so my closing question which i asked every single guest is all about time as we've talked about the power hour i really do believe time is the most valuable thing that we all have so what is the most valuable thing that time has taught you
0: oh i like this big question um i think i would say Time has taught me to respect my body, not just because it's my body, but because it's my microbe's body as well. Um, I know a little bit cheesy and corny, but if you think about it, when people are pregnant, they, like, worship their body. They're like, oh, I don't want to do this. I need to get my sleep. I don't want to be stressed. Um, Because they're growing a human, well, actually – we're home to trillions of microbes who, if we actually nurture on a daily basis, they will look after us. They will produce the right hormones, the right um, vitamins and all those sorts of beneficial things. But if we don't respect it and we abuse it, then it's going it to get nasty. Um, so yeah, I think over time I've learned things like not to binge drink as much. Um, so yeah, respect to my body because it's home not just to me, but to my microbes.
1: I absolutely love that thank you so much and thanks so much for listening as always I really hope that you enjoyed this episode so much info in there I feel like I'm going to re-listen to it and get a pen and paper and write notes so if you think that somebody else would uh, enjoy listening to this then please do share it with them and don't forget you can rate and review us over on iTunes all of that good stuff have an awesome awesome week see ya